Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 32 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. Can't do it without you, and that's where the support is the best and greatest, and you get a lot of special features and early releases and discounts on t-shirts and all that. It's a good place to be, we can talk. Also, please go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre, especially if you are just a listener, go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre and you can see me in action. I do videos for every single one of these podcast episodes. Uh, you have no idea what I'm wearing or showing right now unless you go there and subscribe and like and share and comment. My website is nicktomatio.com. Please sign up at the contact page if you sign up for my newsletter, free newsletter that I put out every few weeks you get, uh, you know, that's access to me and so many other things, uh, early word on a lot of what I released during the year, et cetera, et cetera. And also there on the menu there, you go to shop and that's where you can get rec and MXG t-shirts. And there are now, I have, as of last count, I think 23 designs. So a lot there. And of course, please listen to and support my band rec at recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream music. Let's get right into it. Uh, kind of a surprise episode this week that I felt very moved to do. And the title is Dickens and Prince and Nick Hornby, book talk number six. So yeah, I just did a book talk, but I felt like I needed to do another one, partly because I really don't have any idea what I was going to do this week. Next week's I know already. I try to plan as far in advance as possible, but you know, I was just on vacation last week, didn't have a chance to think of something, and I was reading this book that I had just heard about, and the book here, for those of you who are just listening and pointing to the cover, it's called Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius by, yes, Nick Hornby, the famous writer. I read about it in a New York Times book review article a few weeks ago. Uh, they were interviewing Susanna Hoffs, who's putting out her debut album, and if you don't know who she is, lead singer of the Bangles, she has a Prince connection, and she recommended this book, and I was like, I cannot believe that this exists. So first of all, I'm a huge Dickens fan. I've been a Dickens fan for a really long time, but especially lately, I've been one by one going through his bibliography in order from the very beginning 
Uh, I'm up to David Copperfield now. I'm more than halfway through that, and I'm really loving it. I'm also watching the uh, new Great Expectations adaptation on Hulu or something. Uh, really enjoying that as well. I, I love how it's cast. I love the grittiness of it, and the re- you know, the realism of it. But uh, yeah, huge Dickens fan for so many reasons. I'm also a huge Prince fan. You would know that if you listened to or watched my episode from last season, I believe it was, where I did an entire long episode on Prince. And I'm sure Prince will pop up in many more of my episodes. He's absolutely top three for me, probably, artists, as far as uh, just loving to listen to and influence and all of that. Uh, And also... I'm a, I'm a Nick Hornby fan. I read About a Boy. I read High Fidelity. I've seen the movies of both, and I've seen the more recent uh, and unfortunately short-lived adaptation of it on TV, High Fidelity, with uh, Zoe Kravitz, that I thought was awesome, and it's a shame that they cancel it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a fan of all of these people. And here's what's interesting. I find connections between lots of things. That's part of what I do. I've done it in life, but that's one of the reasons why I created Music is Not a Genre, to make connections where none seem to be, right? Perfect example, I might do a podcast either this season or next, on how uh, the Beastie Boys are like Chicago. Yeah, the band Chicago. Find that connection. But I never, ever... Through all the way my brain works, still never would have thought to connect Dickens and Prince. And I love that Hornby has done it. And even though there are certain uh, aspects of the book that kind of, you know, nudged me in ways that I was uncomfortable with, I feel like ultimately he, he knows the subjects well, treats them with respect. And honestly, it's a real pleasure getting to read about two of my favorite artists uh, in any medium in one book. Now, about the book, about a book, uh, this is more of an extended essay than a book. It's, uh, I want to say it's in the 150-some pages, hardback, that is. Uh, Your mileage may vary if you get it digitally or wherever else. So it's more of an extended essay, and he kind of says that much, or let's say several essays in a row. I think he started it as an essay and then, you know, fleshed it out, possibly. So... Because it's that short, I'm going to break down this discussion into chapters. The chapters aren't numbered, they're named. Uh, Introduction, childhood, their 20s, the movies, the working life, the business, women, and the end. And so the quotes that I'm pulling from this and certain things I'm discussing, I'm going to do chapter by chapter just because it makes sense and it's such a short book. Also another note, when I delve into more kind of granular discussions of the art, whether it's Dickens or Prince, I'm going to lean more on the music because this is a music podcast. And uh, though I'm also a writer, I've been a writer for as long as I've been a musician and a music creator. I have chosen music as more of my life path and specialty. And yes, that's what the podcast's about. And I'm more public with the music than I am with writing or anything. So you know, this would be a much longer and a different podcast if I spent more time focusing on Dickens. But, of course, I will be mentioning Dickens and focusing on that uh, because that's the book. Now, why did I choose this podcast title? This is something I like to do with every episode. Dickens and Hornby. I'm sorry. Yeah. Dickens and Prince and Hornby? Question mark with the, the up inflection there. It's because even after reading this entire book, 
I'm not entirely sure Hornby was the right person to write it. Now, he wrote it, and I'm glad he did, and I will have more of a conclusion at the end of this episode as to how I really feel about that. But, you know, yes, Hornby's a huge music fan. If you've read any of his novels, you know that. So that right there makes sense. And anybody who loves Dickens and loves Prince is somebody that, you know, I feel aligned with and akin to. And yet, I think that there were times he, he I kind of leaned more on his vaster knowledge of writing and novels and all of that and was in many ways uh, better at giving a more comprehensive perspective of Dickens than a Prince. But there could be many reasons for that. I'll go into some of them. Uh, and and I do think that in some ways, and he mentioned this, this this once or twice, he kind of alludes to it, but the comparisons between the two, uh, to me, kind of fall short. You know, it's not like, uh, what was he talking about? I think he mentioned in the book how JFK and Lincoln and people always found all these comparisons. They were both killed by three named people and they were both killed, you know, like all of this all of this stuff shot in the head. And I forget all the ones that the name of the something secretary or something like that. Uh, those kinds of parallels are not really made much at all here. I mean, they, they almost died at the same age. Dickens was 58. Prince was 57 in his 58th year though, I believe. And he kind of mentions a few of those. And the fact that they're both one famous one name people, if you say Dickens, you're not thinking of a different Dickens. If you say Prince, you're not thinking of a different Prince. Uh, whereas many other famous people don't have that one name distinction as someone as famous as like a, a James Dean or a Michael Jackson. If you just said James or Dean or Michael or Jackson, out of context, no one would have any idea what you were talking about. So, But other than that, I think the commonalities he goes for are mostly esoteric, although he does mention these things. Poverty, they both grew up in poverty. They both had trauma and hardship as children. They both had an obsessive work ethic and an obsessive consumption of media of all forms and of life, you know, art and media and life. And they were both uh, quite liberal and quite charitable, uh, you know. And I think... Uh, the things that uh, let's get to the things that aren't in common. But before then, I think Hornby missed a, a big commonality here, and this may be because he's so much more attuned to the writing life and the music life. But they both had an incredible ability to take in different voices from different walks of life or different genres and and present them and represent them organically, uh, bouncing from one to the other as if all of them were central to their identity. So not just speaking in one voice, speaking in many voices and doing it very comfortably. And uh, Dickens, yes, characters, characterizations. And with Prince, it manifests in the lyrics and and certainly in the way that he sang and how he changed his voice quite often from one song to another. And also in the styles of music that he tackled. And and I think equally well um, on you know most fronts anyway. So I'm surprised he didn't mention that in the book, not uh, not in common. Here are things, here's something. Dickens was forthright about his personal life, almost to a fault. He believed that people knew more about it than they actually did because people in literary circles knew about it, but uh, people in the general public didn't. That didn't stop him from, you know, writing a letter to the editor or whatever else you want to say, defending himself and his actions or whatever other 
ways that he felt he needed to discuss his personal life. He was pretty open about it, whether he wanted to be or not. Whereas Prince, there to this day, there are things we still don't know about Prince's childhood and Prince's personal life. So that, to me, is not necessarily a commonality. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And the other thing, and this is what I was getting to earlier, is that Nick Hornby often kind of... Uh, negatively reviews Prince. Uh, he he has a real reverence for his output in the 80s. Let's say that. I'll even say most of the output of the 80s. A string of five albums that he name checks, which I think was uh, 1999, uh, Purple Rain, Around the World in the Day, Parade, uh, if I got those, I'm sorry, and then Sign of the Times, and says good things about a few others, but doesn't have a lot of reverence for his early work or really any of his work from the 90s on. And it's interesting to me that then he feels like this is an artist that is so central to his life. And there's a quote that I'll read later. And yet, you know, I get it. And I, you're, if you're being a critic, you have to be honest. And there are things he said that maybe I bristle at because I secretly think they might be true. Uh, but I also think that 
his judgment is, again, from sort of an outsider standpoint as far as music goes, having that insider knowledge of music and having, to me, I've always had a real reverence for an artist who understands their intention and presents that intention in the the way that they want to, you know. So if their goal was to create uh, what he said, something like a messy triple album or whatever, you, you don't think that Prince wanted to do that? You know, I, I and, and so I think that some of his judgments are based more on what he wished Prince would have done and he even says as much than let's judge it on its own merits and, and in its own intentions. So I don't know, you know, I, I, and we'll get into that when we get to some of the quotes, right? Uh, let's see. We like, we're like, yeah, I'm going to skip that. The only other thing I'll say before we get into these chapters is that I love that Nick Hornby more than once mentioned Questlove and clearly has a super respect for Questlove. And honestly, if you are a music fan of any sort, and I mean of any sort, you really should A, know Questlove, B, have a real respect for Questlove. Uh, And that's all I'm going to say about that. So let's get into the chapter quotes. Let's get right down to it. So introduction, uh, uh, there's... All very actually, there are several quotes of this. Really, he hit me, you know, hits you right off the bat with a lot of great ideas and his explanation of why he, you know, uh, wrote this. So let me read this. When I read about the box set, I thought, who else ever produced this much? Who else ever worked that way? It was supposed to be a rhetorical question, but then I realized there was an answer. Dickens, Dickens did. Dickens worked that way. Maybe there were other people who were just as prolific, although I doubt it especially since Prince did a lot more than just record and Dickens did a lot more than simply write novels. But I yoked them together in my mind at that moment. And the many other people that he loves, uh, you know, he calls them my people, people he's thought about over the years a lot. Uh, Quote, the artists who have shaped me, inspired me, made me think about my own work. I have scores of people like that, uh, influences and role models and heroes. And he goes on to list uh, musicians and, and artists and writers and all of that, and making the point that of that entire list, which might have been 40 people long, only Dickens and Prince were as obsessively prolific, uh, you know, as that. Uh, and and that's, I think, an interesting thing to, and I think there's another quote later on where I kind of um, roll this out a little bit more, but it's interesting to ponder, keep it in your mind, how prolific, uh, I think, there's a real thread through both of their lives. I was, another quote here, I was 20 or 21 when I started Bleak House, old enough. I'd read E.M. Forster at school, Vonnegut, Nathaniel West, Chandler at home, and Dickens' assignment, as I remember, came shortly after we, or my fellow students anyway, because I didn't bother with very much of it, had been trudging through the Gawain poet and Pierce Plowman and probably something else that my clash-loving younger self had found Heimlich maneuver level indigestible. And I remember two things. One, it was funny, and Dickens' turns of phrase and comic imagination were a complete surprise to me. Making people laugh, I realized incredulously, was important to him. And I'm telling you, one of the things I say about Dickens whenever I mention I'm reading Dickens, or have you read Dickens, or somebody asks me what I'm reading, whatever it is, who's a favorite author, is you don't realize how funny he is. And that's in, and so far, every novel I have read, including Bleak House, which, I mean, as the novel title says, is bleak. But he's funny, like super funny, which I didn't realize when I was a kid, when I read 
uh, I believe, A Tale of Two Cities in school. Uh, maybe that's not the funniest of his novels, but I'm sure there was humor in there that I completely missed because of, I wasn't comfortable with the language yet. And man, Dickens is funny. Now, back to the quote. And the second thing I remember during my initial exposure, just as I was realizing that I might have got Dickens wrong, is that there was this incredible moment when I felt the narrative start to move like a giant tanker. The book was so monumental that it didn't occur to me that the movement would even be possible. Uh, I wasn't sure I would even finish it. But once I started moving, I could tell that it was just going to take me where it wanted to go, and I could neither stop it nor get off. I was a Dickens fan. And I guess... It's interesting to me that when I start a novel, and I have read recently, I think, four of Dickens' novels, uh, including uh, Martin Chuzzlewit and uh, Barnaby Rudge and now David Copperfield, and I'm, I'm forgetting a, a couple, and all the ones before. But what I'm noticing now is that I start one and think, oh, boy, you know, this is daunting. It's big. Am I going to be able to get through this? And then it just takes you. If you really open up to it, it just takes you. And I find it interesting that he mentions that and doesn't seem to me to give the same sort of uh, attention to all of Prince's work. You know, you may, I've said this before, you may have favorites. I have my favorite Prince albums, Prince eras, whatever. But if you really love an artist, you give them their due throughout their entire career and try to at least understand where they're coming from, even if something doesn't connect with you. And I feel like there was too easy a dismissal of everything from the 70s and then the 90s and beyond of Prince's work by Nick Hornby, unlike his ability to sink into any Dickens novel and understand whether it was his best or not, how good it was and why and how it takes you along. Uh, All right. And here you go. As the decades went on, loving Prince meant having to ignore some loweringly lewd lyrics. Uh, and blah, blah, blah. So he drifted from my vision until 1999. He, uh, he had said, and Hornby had said that he was blown away by his first album because it was so fresh and then felt as though the next couple of albums didn't follow, maybe didn't expand enough on that and were repetitive. And then 1999 comes out and things like Little Red Corvette and Lyrious and, you know, having that uh, sense of how to write a pop song. And he loves Little Red Corvette because... He's using all these extended metaphors and really setting the, the, the mood and the tone, and he thinks it's magnificent. And sure, you know, Prince was still developing in all of that, and I've said this before, because a friend of mine once said that Prince's early work wasn't that good, and I'm like, you need to listen to it again. And I would say that to Mr. Hornby as well, because even though it might not be Purple Rain or Sign of the Times or Parade, which is one of my all-time favorites around the world in a day, all those... 1999. You can't just say, oh, he was doing that to get where he went to. Because I believe that even if his later work didn't exist, we would look back on that work and understand how incredible that is as well. And that there was development, you know. All right. But as the years went on, it became apparent that Prince was a particular kind of genius. He couldn't stop writing, recording, playing, couldn't dam up his creativity and didn't seem to want to anyway. He couldn't stop working. There actually aren't many artists with no off switch. And there aren't any at all, I don't think, among my people, apart from Prince and Dickens. We can, we, what can we learn from looking at two artists, both sui generis, which is why maybe the coupling isn't so odd, who literally have more than their fair share of talent? What did they do with it? Did it damage them in some way, personally, professionally? Is there any way of knowing where it came from? Did it kill them? 
And this is a thread that runs through the book that he goes back to. And it's a thread I kind of enjoy because I've always had uh, my thoughts about how prolific an artist can be or should be or shouldn't be or any of that stuff or what should you put out or shouldn't you put out. There's a lot of shoulds in those sentences on purpose because later on he talks about the quote-unquote rules of writing and, and of honestly creating and releasing that, that, those creations uh, and what rules mean to him or what he's learned about them, both from other writers and from these artists in particular. So something to keep in your mind. Get to the next chapter, childhood. Oh, and money was an issue for both of them when they were growing up. There were and are so many poor people in the world that it doesn't feel like much of a big deal, but they were truly great artists, and childhood poverty should have stopped them from achieving as much as they did. That's the way the world works, isn't it? It is still that way in many fields of endeavor, but during the 20th century, art changed, and the people who made it changed, too. Elvis Presley, Cary Grant, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Charlie Chaplin, Dolly Parton, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jay-Z, giants in their fields, were all damagingly poor. And Nick Hornby makes a case for this very well. Uh, even though he says, we know way more about Dickens' Child and the Princess, but we know how damagingly poor they were and the kind of, you know, trauma that they had. Uh, that was really it for childhood. You can read the book and find out more. The next chapter, their 20s. Uh, there's a guy named Chris Moon, an Englishman named Chris Moon, who ran a studio called Moon Sound. He was a frustrated songwriter who was impressed by Prince's dedication, discipline, and chops, and he made him an offer. If Prince set Moon's lyrics to music, Moon would give him free studio time for his own stuff. Prince was even promised a key to Moon's sound. The other members of Champagne, which was um, Prince's band at the time, so this is, we're talking, you know, early, well, I mean, sorry, mid to late 70s, were irritated by the competition for Prince's talents and time and gave him an ultimatum, the band or Moon. Can any of you guess which way Prince went? He chose Moon. And here's what's interesting about that. When you are in a band, and, and Nor Hornby says this, it's very hard to ditch your bandmates because you've been through things together. You're creating music together, etc., etc. But there are times when you have to make hard decisions about are they going to uh, do things you don't want to do or hold you back? And Prince knew from the very beginning and was so just focused on success and, and doing the music he wanted to do that it, that it was time for him to ditch the band as hard as that was. Uh, even though I think he worked with some of them later on when they realized he, he also made the right decision. Uh, and then also uh, in, what was this, their 20s, we now tend to think that all Victorian fiction was published in installments, but it was only Dickens who was repeatedly successful, and he stayed loyal to them right up until his death. So if you don't know, Dickens' novels were published in publications, chapter by chapter. Uh, I don't know the full, you know, but knowing that that had to happen gave Dickens deadline and, and, and kind of a, you know, yeah, he had to keep writing no matter what so that he could get the next installment out by the next week or however frequently it was published. And, you know, he talks about later on Hornby how neither of these artists were perfectionists and there were reasons why they weren't. But for Dickens, it was because it was that publisher perished thought. And he wasn't precious about what he wrote. And it's one of the amazing things about Dickens is he didn't really do a lot of rewriting. He just, he, he kind of, you know, knew what he wanted to do and did it and sometimes didn't even know 
what he wanted to do and just started and did it. Uh, Pickwick Papers was ripped off. Several authors wrote several further adventures. Uh, Sam Weller went viral, as it were, with his own spinoff, Sam Weller's Pickwick Jest Book. All the funny sayings of Sam and his companions and upward of a thousand jokes, puns, epigrams, jeu d'esprit, etc. Even before Dickens invented Christmas, he clearly, if inadvertently, invented the stocking stuffer, too. Stocking filler. It's interesting that, uh, well, he said, it's comical to look at the attempts of publishers to replicate Pickwick's magic. And what makes it funnier is that they seem to have learned little in the last 180-odd years. How many new Bridget Jones have there been? How many white teeth and gone girls? Every time something hits big, there are scores of attempts to imitate the success. Even though the freshness and originality of the originals were responsible for the success in the first place. After the Pickwick Papers and Nicholas Nickleby, Victorian publishers decided, like particularly slow-witted detectives, that the secret to the mystery was in the alliteration. So watch out! Here come Valentine Vox, the ventriloquist, Will's whim, uh, consisting of characteristic curiosities, Charlie Cox, and David Dreamy. When that failed, they rushed to Dickens' illustrator, Fizz, and Dickens was writing under the name Boz at the time, so it was Fizz and Boz, uh, who said uh, he had more commissions than he could fulfill, blah, 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 blah. There was no Miss Pickwick Papers was successful because it had been written by an extraordinary talent when Dickens was only 24 years old. Prince's progress toward that level of success was a little slower, but then he started earlier. Dickens made it in 100 meters boom like Usain Bolt. Prince needed a longer distance, even though he and Dickens pretty much ended up in the same place at the same age. And in any case, a three-album deal with Warners at 18 although he may have shaved a year or so off his age to emphasize his prodigiousness, is hardly abject failure. He was the youngest artist ever to have been backed that heavily. So, talking about precociousness and and prodigious talent at such an early age, and Prince, to uh, Hornby's mind, put out work before he had matured, and sure, maybe, and yet there are songs off of those first several albums that people still remember and sing to this day. So I'm not sure I agree with that. But it is interesting that even back then, you see how little has changed. There were authors who were trying to replicate the success of Dickens' novels by just copying. And everybody copies. And that's fine if you steal it so well that you make it yours. But if you are just ripping someone off and not giving them their due, and Dickens absolutely sued people for that, That's not a good thing. Uh, If Dickens and Prince were to compare notes about their nascent pre-breakthrough careers, I suspect that Dickens might be grateful for the years of anonymity spent wandering the streets, parliamentary offices, and law courts of London. There was the material those years provided, and yet there was no chance of public humiliation. Prince had to abort a supporting gig with the Rolling Stones because the racist and homophobic Disco Sucks crowd jeered and threw stuff at him. The record company came to see him perform a showcase gig and decided he wasn't ready for a national tour. The introduction to his first appearance on TV on the late night entertainment show, The Midnight Special, was made by Ray Sawyer and Dennis Locarier of Dr. Hook. Not a good fit. Made even more uncomfortable by the young man's stage outfit, which consisted of a skimpy zebra-striped pouch, what looked like thigh-high boots, and a bare chest wrapped in some kind of gold lame shawl. Maybe if Dickens had been given a lucrative three-book deal in his teens before he'd written a word of fiction, he'd have felt the pressure and desperation. Okay, okay, listen. 
First of all, I think Prince was making a statement by wearing that outfit. And to do that at such an early point in your career and so young and do it so boldly when this is like your first shot at TV is to me incredible and is not something, you know, I don't think it's lamentable at all. And the fact that it was, you know, Dr. Hook that was the uh, introduction there on that show is I almost think, I don't know if it was by design, but it makes sense because, you know, Prince wasn't just a gender bender, he was a genre bender. And there's a reason why those two words are, you know, cognate. And, and so him wanting to, whether he wanted to or not, being affiliated in that way, the first TV appearance with Dr. Hook, it kind of makes sense. It's like, you can't really pin me down. And but then, of course, yeah, I've talked about the homophobia and uh, racism laden in uh, the whole Disco Sucks era. And if right now you are somebody who thinks rock by nature and by default is categorically better than disco or funk or any of that kind of music, then you can bye-bye. You can shut this off. Or just keep listening. It might be interesting to hear what you what you think about everything else I'm saying. Uh, yes, yeah, so... Little Red Corvette, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, these are some quotes that I don't need. The, uh, yes, he talks about a, uh, an uncomfortable interview with Dick Clark, which if you've seen that from, I think he was like 20 years old, it is very uncomfortable. He was painfully shy. I think to the day he died, he still had a lot of shyness to him, although it became more coyness uh, later on in his life. But uh, he was not one of the best public speakers. What he did well, he did in his music. At this point, it might be useful to address the theory originally proposed in a Swedish 1993 paper entitled The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance and popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers that genius cannot be attained without 10,000 hours of practice. Since the publication of the Gladwell book, there has been some pushback on this idea. A study attempting to replicate the 1993 test found that factors other than practice were responsible for elevating a musician or a sportsman into the super elite level. How much did Prince practice before he broke through? And yeah, sure, he practiced a lot, but he did more than that. And one of the things he he did was consume. And let me continue this quote. But of course, many of us have found out 10,000 hours aren't enough on their own without the genius. And what made us so hungry in the first place? What caused the appetite to be so sharp, so insatiable, when so many other people simply take pleasure in listening to music sometimes or watching the TV of an evening? In John Carey's brilliant book, What Good Are the Arts? He demolishes one by one all the lessons and rules and theories that people have applied to culture and its significance. Their attempts to prove through science or logic or philosophy that great art does this to you and is better than not great art because it has that. Rather pathetically, uh, the authors Hans Kreitler and uh, Schlemuth Kreitler conclude that we like what we like. So, yes, we like what we like, and I'm glad that Nick Hornby agrees with that and why you like it. That book that I uh, talked about last season kind of says that in several hundred pages. But the answer is we like what we like. You could try to break it down, but it doesn't seem all that effective to do so. But let's get back to this. And let me finish with this before I comment. So perhaps it's not 10,000 hours of practice that counts. It's 10,000 hours of consumption. I'm going to say this. 
I perform quite frequently. I have to learn a lot of music for four sets, let's say. You know, that's 15 songs maybe per set, 60 songs a show, whatever. A lot of them I know, but even the ones I don't know, I get much more out of listening to them than I do out of playing. In fact, there have been times where I haven't had time to learn a song through practice. I will just listen to it well enough to know the structure of it and the the key and blah, 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 and get on stage and do it. And sure, that's in part because I've had so much previous practice and I have a knowledge of, of how to play the instrument in theory and how to direct my focus on stage even when I might have to look at a note or whatever it is. But it's also because I'm a voracious listener. I consume, consume, consume. That can be said for other things in my life, but especially for music. And Dickens was a voracious reader. And it makes it, don't lock yourself up in a room, say, all I'm going to do is practice, and then I'm going to create something. It makes it infinitely easier and more vibrant if you absorb everything you possibly can before creating, before performing. Let it, and you know Prince did that. When you think about all the different influences that he had, whether it was, uh, you know, P-Funk or Joni Mitchell and all the stuff, you know, before and after, that was the way he was too. So, and I've always, I believe from the very beginning, Malcolm Gladwell, and did I mention this in a recent episode? I may have. Um, is a, I won't say charlatan because I think he knows what he's doing. He's not trying to dupe anybody, but I think he often creates, um, you know, circular logic for uh, explaining the arguments that he puts forth. And to me, doesn't give enough counter arguments to say, well, this could be the case, that could be the case. And it's like what, uh, you know, Hornby said about John Carey's uh, brilliant book, What Good Are the Arts, and he, how he demolishes all the lessons and rules that people have applied to culture, and also to how to create art, how to, you know, present art. And again, there's another quote down there that's going to talk more about, well, what are the rules of releasing an album or writing a novel? How frequently do you have to do that, et cetera, et cetera. Next chapter, the movies. Uh, Dickens missed the age of cinema, but not by that much. If he had lived to be 85, he could have seen the death of Nancy Sykes, silent short dramatization of a scene from Oliver Twist. And Dickens had been acknowledged as an enormous influence on early filmmakers. Eisenstein, no less, wrote an essay entitled Dickens, Griffith, and the Film Today, which pointed out that D.W. Griffith simply transferred Dickens' narrative devices into his screenplays. Griffith's innovation eventually became known as cross-cutting. Before Oliver the movie, there was Oliver the West End and Broadway Musical, which opened in 1960. Movie version of Bart's musical was nominated for 11 Oscars and won six, including Best Picture and Best Director. Dickens was 156 when the film was released, a little late in the day to undergo personal transformation, but Lionel Bart did something to him, just as the film Purple Rain did something to Prince, and as a consequence, people got them wrong. And I do think that's interesting. When you adapt something into a movie or a television show, if you don't know the author or the whatever it is, the musician, you're going to get probably a mistaken impression or at least a narrow, myopic impression of the artist. It's also, it's also interesting to me that he talks about Dickens and film because when I'm reading Dickens' books, you can see these scenes. 
they're written so well because Dickens was an actor and and acted, you know, at least uh, did, you know, monologues and readings, dramatic readings from his books throughout his life. Made a lot of money that way, actually, doing tours. So he understood what needed to be in a book to make it move. You know, that's why these are so well adapted to TV and film. It's honestly quite incredible. Uh, what's interesting, though, and I don't know if I kept this quote in. If I did, I'll re- just repeat it. And that is that uh, Hornby didn't like Purple Rain. That was a bad film. Now, if you are going to measure it against all the ones that you know are on the list of 100 greatest films or whatever it is, and there's one that the, the list came out a couple of months ago, I believe. Sure, okay, yes. But for what it was intending to do, you know, it, you're not going to, it's not, you're not going to see the greatest acting in the world. You're not going to see the most innovative plot or anything like that. And the, the shots are fine, uh, you know, but they're not going to wow anybody. But for what it was intending to do, again, it, it did that. It created a living myth by linking it with Purple Rain, the album, and with Prince, the performer, but also the, you know, kid or whatever his character's name was in Purple Rain. So I think even though on some levels you might say it wasn't the greatest film ever, to say it was a bad film, I think, is doing what he said, John Kerry said, you shouldn't do, which is high, you know, it, is it, it's not high art, so it's not worthy or, you know, something. Maybe that wasn't Hornby's intention. Next chapter, The Working Life. Some of the lessons to be learned from Dickens' astonishing accomplishments are antithetical, for writers, anyway. We should, as Gates says, be intimidated by them, or at least we should if that's what we're aiming for. The better way, I think, is to conclude that it's not worth bothering. Even if you've been published, even if you sold well and are won prizes, you can't get there. But alongside the intimidation, there's something very liberating about his method of working because it immediately explodes the idea that there is a right way of doing things. If arguably the greatest novelist in the English language wrote for today and not tomorrow and proceeded quickly and without much care, then maybe the advice that other writers dispense isn't worth tuppence. You know, perfect your stuff. Get it exactly right. When you're a musician, the production has to be perfect every aspect of the performance and every pitch you sing has to be perfect and the way all of it's put together has to be perfect so you're going to take months and years to get around to putting something out or just put it out because nothing is ever going to be perfect even if your mind you did it you know exactly how you wanted it to do to do it somebody else might listen to it and say ah yeah you don't have enough bass in there or you know, your voice was off here. I don't understand what you did there, as Nick Hornby did with a lot of prints. I I have always been more on the side of keep producing, put stuff out. I said this in my uh, episode, I think, on, you know, DIY. Don't wait to be great. Just do it. Neither of these. In fact, here's a quote. He was not a perfectionist, said Princess Engineer Susan Rogers. He wouldn't have had that output if he'd been a perfectionist. It just poured out of him. He couldn't wait on perfection. Prince taught us perfection is in spontaneity, said Terry Lewis, who was fired from the time by Prince, but who with Jimmy Jam went on to have an enormous career in production and songwriting. New Jack. You just do it, and whatever it is, it's perfect. Create and don't ponder what you created. So he's saying 
that what you did was already perfect to make it into something uh, quote unquote better doesn't make it more perfect. It makes it different. And I've really taken that on in the last few years. Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, how much music put out, put uh, Prince put out later on. I'll get to that, but let's just talk specifically about how the creation happened. And that is that, you know, I put that five EP or five album, you know, weird objective out a couple of years ago. I wasn't looking for perfection. I was looking for uh, breadth and depth and, and to make the songs sound like I wanted them to sound and, and to create this, uh, idea of you can go anywhere you want to as an artist. This next album that I'm working on, uh, the Rex album that's coming out later this year, I'm doing my best to use as many first takes as possible because I think that's where a lot of the spontaneity is. Now, if the first take is a mistake and it's not a usable mistake because some mistakes are wonderful, then sure, do another take, you know. But anytime it's like, well, what else could I do to make it better? But if it's already sounding good and then I say to myself, Oh, I just got to redo it the right way. Then I'm going to take some of that spontaneity out. And here's part of this quote. In 1986, Prince built a studio, a proper one, in his home in Minnesota. The need for an expensive studio was an indication of both creative superabundance and paradoxically, a lack of interest in perfection. A little four-track would have meant he was making demos, and he didn't want to do that. Demos were for laggards, for people who spent a long time making an album. Prince wanted to roll out of bed and know that whatever he recorded that day would be good enough. And then he could move on. He just wanted to create and not ponder. And that's the way to do it. You know, yes, I agree. In these days, it's easier. Get a good DAW and get, you know, good, a good enough interface to where if you're recording something, you know that just base level quality, it's going to be good, you know. But then do it and then release it and then move on to the next thing. Your, your best thing is the next thing. No matter how good what you're doing is now, you if you are continuing to create, you will always want to do something more and different and better. So just get whatever you're doing now done. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, Dickens wasn't a perfectionist either. He had no time to be. He compared Dickens to Harper Lee and J.D. Salinger. Put out a novel, be acclaimed for it, and then for whatever reason, just not put another one out or take forever. To me, okay, I don't know uh, enough about the writing life as far as being published to know what the motivations are to take many, many years to write an, uh, write a novel other than if you're stuck or, for, you know, it's just that difficult. But I've always been more impressed by somebody like Stephen King who not every novel he writes is his best, but every novel is good. And some of those novels are incredible. And it's not like he spent more or less time on average on any of them. He just kept putting them out. I I have often compared uh, Stephen King to Dickens. This in the way that he approaches uh, humanity and dialogue and, and all of that, uh, colloquialisms, etc. And his output, you know. Or if you think of music, how many years did we have to wait for Guns N' Roses' follow-up album, Chinese Democracy, and then you get it and you're like, what? What? Like, I, okay, don't be precious with your stuff. You know, one of the things that was thrilling about Prince was that you never had to wait very long for new music. You know, there are, there are artists who, as they get older, you're waiting, uh, you know, two years is fine to me. 
three, okay, four, that's that's about far as I would like to go. But if you're getting into five, six, seven, eight, you know, 10, 15 years, then are, what are you doing? I mean, if you're performing, okay, maybe you don't want to put new material out. But if you're actually working on new material and, and intend to put it out, then put it out. Okay. Uh, another quote, it is and was variously, depending on who you listen to, an indictment of Dickens' sentimentality or his power to connect with the masses in the way that only television has done since. And this was about his ability to be so connected to society and to kind of middle-class people or whatever that was at the time, even lower-class people, and to really try to get his works into the hand, those hands because he identified so much with him. He grew up that way, and he understood pathos and, and, and uh, empathy and compassion and all of that. And yes, I would agree that as good as some of the adaptations, like the recent David Copperfield one, uh, which was wonderfully done, but a kind of a new take on it, are movie-wise, it's really been the television adaptations that have worked best with Dickens because duh, his books were serialized. And even if they weren't, that's how stories like that roll out. You can't do it in two hours or three or four. Okay, next chapter, the business. Uh, This is a time when fans were slipping through Prince's fingers like sand. He wouldn't play his hits live. As far as the majority of the public was concerned, one moment he was nine-figure rich, the next he was complaining about servitude. This was when he had the symbol for a name, the Tapcap, the artist uh, Tapcap, the artist formerly known as Prince, and had slave uh, written on his uh, cheek. It was confusing, alienating, and a little tasteless given the connotations of the words scrawled on his face. And for those of us who had started loving him in our 20s and were now in our 30s, it all seemed a little embarrassing. Nearly everybody who had any time for him lost sight of him during this period, which would be the 90s. There were countless albums, and it was impossible to tell whether they were any good or not because nobody seemed to write about them or talk about them, although with the benefit of hindsight, Spotify, and YouTube, it turned out that they mostly weren't. But in one way, the way that seemed to matter to him at the time, it worked. Now, here's the thing. Prince's goals went beyond music. He wanted to own his masters. He wanted to set the precedent that other artists could follow that you should own your work that you should have control over your work unless you choose to sell it off, sell your catalog, whatever, and you're moving on. But if that's what you want, you should have it. You should have the option to have it. And I don't think it's Hornby's or my or any of our places to judge whether him scrawling the word slave on his cheek was in poor taste or not. So I think that Hornby went a little far here. And I also, while, you know, you you did wish... Well, here's the thing. He's still focused on music, you know, and he put out some stuff in the 90s that probably does say later you'll find gems, but I think it even goes beyond that. You're not necessarily going to say that as a whole, the one album or double or triple album or whatever was the best album as far as the album being a work of art. But you're not going to say that it that's like he said, that it turned out the music mostly wasn't good. That, to me, is somebody not listening to those as much as he listened to the stuff that he liked. And I think it's also that, you know, time makes a difference. So you are you can eat more easily judge Dickens because so much time has passed. You cannot judge Prince's later work as easily because not enough time has passed for that. 
And I find it actually surprising that Hornby wouldn't make mention of that because he is so insightful that he wouldn't say, well, you know, maybe as time passes, we'll look back on those and understand what he was trying to do with them and why he was so insanely prolific in that period, even more so than his earlier, which is pretty much the opposite of what every other artist does. You know, you two, several years, you know, and more and more years between each album as they get older, most artists do that. Prince did fewer, you know, weights between albums. And when he put an album out, it would be insanely huge. Uh, to continue, how one wishes he had shrugged, downsized if necessary, and made great music. Maybe he couldn't any longer. Maybe the muse was no longer there, but that seems unlikely. If you can be bothered to trawl through the 25-odd albums he released since Diamonds and Pearls, you will find hidden some of the greatest music he ever made, which means some of the greatest music ever made. If you had heard Sticky Like Glue or Pretty Man or Chelsea Rogers on the radio at various points in the 21st century and the DJ had told you afterward that it was by a new artiste, you'd have sat up and taken notice. But in the end, we stopped listening. We always stop listening. There are too many other people to hear. And I think at least he's calling himself out. Stop listening. He might have heard each album once. Big deal. You know, when the world passes by some artist, we often also start thinking less of that artist. Oh, they haven't had a hit. I love them, but no one else loves them. And then you listen to their stuff and say, oh, well, maybe it's not as good. So you got to stop that. You know, there are different phases in an artist's life, and you have to take it at face value. And to say, if you'd heard Sticky Like Glue or Pretty Man or Chelsea, okay, well then, what? A, there's a bunch of other songs on all of these albums that are absolutely amazing, and the albums on the whole were still a pleasure to listen to and still better than a lot of other music that was being released. Uh, funny thing, uh, oh, uh, yeah, no, that's it. The record label most closely associated with sound-alike hits so hits that were created to be cheaper that sounded like the you know uh, hit, the big hit that they couldn't afford. That record label was called Pickwick, and he thinks it's weird that nobody has written a book comparing Prince and Dickens before just for that reason, which I thought was funny because Nick Hornby can be incredibly funny, and that is kind of a neat coincidence. Uh, all right. Moving on to Dickens. Soon after that, Dickens went back to America for the last time in his life. In an odd prefiguring of the lesson that Prince learned, Dickens performed a lucrative reading tour of the Northeast States, 76 dates in five months. He had worked out in England that live appearances earned him more than his books, and so he developed a stage show. He didn't read directly from the novels. Rather, he mined them for dramatic scenes, then condensed and adapted with the emphasis always on pathos and humor. As Claire Tomlin puts it, he that's how she put it, he performed his greatest hits, selections from A Christmas Carol, over half the reading consisted of Christmas stories. David Copperfield Pickwick, he was by all accounts a magnificent live performer and a popular one. It is impossible to get tickets, Henry James wrote to his brother. At 7 o'clock a.m. on the first day of the sale, there were two or three hundred at the office, and at nine when I strolled up, nearly a thousand. Dickens earned the contemporary equivalent of one million pounds. He hadn't quite stuck his work on the cover of a newspaper, but all those pirated books, which the U.S. pirated his books and just sold them without his uh, permission, had created a huge fan base. And I think that's one of the biggest one points here. A, sure, especially in this day and age, performing is probably more lucrative than streaming or selling, etc. But 
uh, that to me is more a case with the top, you know, 20% of artists, say the bottom 80, they're not making that much money performing, you know, at least not performing original material. That's for sure. It's interesting that Dickens was a, not just a star, but a mega superstar that they you have to wait in line behind a thousand people to get tickets to one of his shows. And that all that those pirated things gave him a huge fan base to me is one of the reasons why I'm chill with people sharing my music however they want to. I would like to make more money from it. But if you're going to pass along, you know, however it is you share music or these days streaming and just whatever, that's going to create, an, you know, more of a fan base and an interest in the music than if you just, you know, protected it and only shared it certain outlets that paid you that much money you know we're all fighting for more money more revenue streaming revenue and all of that but as far as just the love of having fans and having people love your music you know there's nothing like dissemination of any type here's one of the simple answers artists have a freelance mentality there is always a fear of failure a sense that the next book or record will not only fail but somehow render all the others unreadable or unlistenable taste change People have their moment in the sun, and the sun moves on to somebody else. Our careers seem built on nothing. Words, ideas, sand, and we can also too easily imagine the plummet back down to earth in a way that doesn't seem possible if you're a lawyer or if you have a skill you know people are going to need tomorrow, next year, the rest of your working life, like plumbing or dentistry. There are already plenty of books and music, paintings and movies. People could cope without more. They might even welcome the break in the flow. And yet, if you're somebody like Dickens or Prince or me in some ways, you don't, you don't wait. And nor should any artist, as far as I'm concerned. If you have a lot to put out, put a lot out. If you have a little to put out, put a little out. Tastes do change, and it, I think it's important that, yes, we don't have time to listen and, and, and everything to everything, but if you can catch up with somebody you once loved, you might be quite surprised. I've done that with a lot of artists, now with my chronologies. Women. In the song I Would Die For You uh, came out in 1994, 1984. Prince says he's neither a woman or a man. He was only half right when he went on to tell us that we would never understand. Most of us didn't understand back then, but it turned out that Prince's sexuality came from the future, and we finally got there. Even someone like me, who grew up during a time when homophobic jokes provided nightly mainstream entertainment, young people are explaining it to us, and it's deeply interesting. Of course gender is non-binary, a spectrum, not two poles. We've known it all along. Sort of, because throughout history, there have been cultures and individuals who have exemplified non-binary ways of doing things. My wife says this all the time. I say this to my kids, too. The Samoan, Fa'afafine, who identify themselves as third gender, are both very feminine and very masculine whenever they feel like it. So, it's been around since forever, and I think that Prince being able to do that as part of his career when he didn't need to is a testament to how how much he understood about the human condition and how gender is, uh, you know, human is not a gender as music is not a genre or whatever. And that how early that was. A universal friend born Jemima Wilkinson in 1752 refused to acknowledge gendered pronouns, although they also preached abstinence. So they may not be as on point like to be when discussing Prince's sexuality. Uh, there is a band called Public Universal Friend on Spotify. So that was, I guess, the name of the religion, Public Universal Friend. It might be related to Friends. There are countless examples over thousands of years. We've always written them, meaning non-binary people, off as weirdos and outliers, never suspecting that they, like Prince, were showing us where we were heading. 
another one last thing in this chapter is he talks about how Prince loved women for many reasons, sure, sexually, relationship-wise, uh, also intellectually and also artistically, often supported women in their careers, some to, you know, to varying degrees of success, uh, even behind the scenes, uh, Prince's engineer and all the people, so many of those people Prince worked with were women. Dickens loved women to a point where it messed up his marriage. Ten kids with his wife, but he had more than one mistress throughout his life. All right, the end. Last chapter. Very easy to lose track. It's remained easy to lose track of a favorite artist, especially when that favorite artist is gushing out songs as if they were water from a tap, and they are no longer getting the media attention they previously enjoyed. The last album released during his lifetime, Hit and Run Phase 2, got the same critical response that his albums usually receive from the 1990s onward. The first review that comes up on Google says it may be Prince's best album in a decade or two. The next says it's an underwhelming entry in Prince's canon. It's happened to a great many artists, especially older artists, especially over the last decade, the decade of too much everything. But incredibly, it happened to Dickens, too. There's a line in Claire Tomlin's biography that made me stop dead and reread it. Bleak House was ignored in the chief critical reviews. How funny, then, that all those years later, its survival and apparently its length has taken it away from the people and has held up as the antithesis of... Okay, that's something else. Yeah, you know, critics, right? And context and time. We can listen to Hit and Run Phase 2 and maybe none of us puts it up there with some of our top five favorite Prince albums, but what if it had come out as as the first album, you know, of from that artist or some other artist? I think we'd be pretty amazed. And I think it's important to try to judge everything on its own merits and not judged against other works, you know? Um, and with, with Dickens, it is interesting that that happened. And a lot of work that people do is not appreciated until much later. There are songs I released 15 years ago or more that are more popular now than they were then, you know, and you just never know. You really never know. Uh, getting, getting to that quote, uh, it would have to do with populism Bleak House was the antithesis. People look, think of Dickens and think high-minded. And, but if you haven't read Dickens and don't understand Dickens, you don't understand how colloquial and connected to the people and how much he cared for this, the common person and the lower-class person and poor people and all of that. Same with Shakespeare. Uh, Hornby says, we misjudge Shakespeare as being high-minded when if you really understood what Shakespeare was writing about, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, understanding the human condition and, and what we all go through and, and just love for and compassion for people of all kinds. Okay. Uh, but time was in short supply for both of them. As you may remember, neither of them lived to see 60 and the conventional wisdom, I suppose, would be that the years they lost were crammed into the lives they actually lived. But the extra work had a vigor and ferocity. There wasn't any elegiac late period reflection just as some footballers who start playing in their mid-teens don't have much of a career post-30, it looks from here as though the sheer amount of writing, recording, and playing made an old age impossible. Uh, Cottage was blah, blah. Meanwhile, he was, uh, Dickens was writing and editing and walking, writing letters, sitting on covers. He's talking about how they worked themselves to death. With Prince, it, it had to do with physical ailments, mostly, and taking medicine for that, and that medicine not being, sadly, regulated well enough, and... Uh, he almost died a few days before he died, but he was with people, and he because he was not with people when he was in the elevator, that's mainly why he died. Uh, and then he's talking about uh, Dickens' last few weeks, I guess. There were so many 
health issues that Dickens had leading up to his death, uh, bilious attacks and nervous prostration, depression and near breakdown, erysipelas, a skin infection, facial pains, headaches, illness after attack by horse, inflamed ear, kidney trouble, nervous exhaustion, piles, reaction to railway accident, rheumatism, spasms and seizures, stomach pain, stroke and swollen foot and lameness, vascular disorder. And, uh, you know, he may have had gonorrhea as well. He, he didn't take care of himself. Work was ultra important as it was for both of these people. You know, there was an exhausting, restless, uh, it was an exhausting, restless death, an appropriate end to an exhausting life. More motion right to the end for a man who never stopped. Uh, he was killed by the need to live life to the full. And that is a death that could have been imagined for the other subject of this book. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. He was a dancer, Prince. Dancers aren't built to last. Too many pieces become frayed and torn. He was famously clean living, anti-drugs vegan, and drank a little red wine in moderation as per the teachings of his church. Jehovah's Witness, if Dickens looked like the septuagenarian when he died, Prince looked like a man in his 30s. Although maybe you can see a little puffiness in his face during the last shows. If the two men had been born the same day, they'd have been dead within six months of each other. 35 or 75, doesn't matter. Those extraordinarily creative brains must have been a thousand years old. And it's surprising, you know, he, again, yeah, I already said that, you know, so he's talking about age and then putting out work and how young they were when they died. And he, and he doesn't really get into the idea that time is a factor in judging a person's work. Spoiler. This is a spoiler. This is a spoiler. I'm going to read the last two paragraphs of this book. If you don't like that, then uh, fast forward about two minutes. I don't know until I'll wave my hand like this. And that means that you can go ahead and, and jump back in. At the moment, it's hard to see Prince fading away, especially if he releases two good albums a year for the next few centuries, past work. Even after those 20-somethings who went to see Purple Rain in the cinema are gone, he was his own genre, Questlove wrote. It's hard to say you don't like his music because his music was everything you ever loved, scrambled, revolutionized, painted different colors. Maybe you're sick of Purple Rain, but somewhere on that enormous sign at the Times box, which he thinks is his most, uh, his uh, best album, Hornby, is a song you'll adore because it contains multitudes, and that's before you get going on the rest. It doesn't matter to me whether they last or don't last, whether you like them or not. That's beyond the scope of this book. What matters to me is that Prince and Dickens tell me every day, not good enough, not quick enough, not enough. More, more, more. Think quicker. Be more ambitious. Be more imaginative. And whatever you do for a living, that's something you need to hear every now and again. Were they happy? Probably not. Were they crazy? Probably. That too is beyond the scope of this book. This book is about work. And nobody ever worked harder than these two, or at higher standard, while connecting with so many people for so long. That's why I have photos of them both on my office wall. They will stay there for as long as I need them, which will be for the rest of my life. Not much to add to that. I think, you know, great artists all teach us something, and these are two of my favorite artists as well, and they're teaching me kind of the same things they're teaching Hornby, which is do more, do more. Don't, you know, dwell on perfection. And be more ambitious, more imaginative. You know, some of those to varying degrees of success I've achieved and some not. You got to keep working at it. The conclusion I have for all this is that I do think that in some small sense, there's a better book in there written by someone who has more knowledge of the inner workings of musical expression and creation as well as writing. It's close and it's wonderful it exists. He has such, Hornby has such insight into Dickens, he better understands the purpose of each novel and each other kind of work that Dickens did, 
not just because of time, but because he's a writer. With Prince, he too easily dismisses later albums without trying to understand why or how they were constructed beyond career politics. And he fairly well dismisses his attempts to mentor and create careers for others, women in particular. But that said, there's full reverence and understanding uh, of, of their careers in total and of them as people. And Hornby does what he does in all of his books. You know, hypercriticism gives way to compassion and the love of art and artists. So despite my discomfort at uh, some of the slams that he gave Prince, in the end, I think Hornby may have been the best person to write this book, no matter, no matter what I said before. And it's a gift that he did so. So last section here, featured songs from Rex album, The Sunshine Seminar. There's a song called Snow Globe. And snow is, is spelled capital S, capital N-O. And it's about a woman caught in her own world to the point where she distances herself from the relationship and the relationship sours and it ends. And this was based loosely on some experiences I had had prior to that. And it's a very Prince-esque song. And it tells a story. It's a vignette of this relationship. So I felt that it was the best one to pick because, uh, you know, Dickens is a part of this too and storytelling and all of that. And yeah, it's about betrayal and love. And I think when you listen to it in the next 30 seconds or so, you'll hear that. Also, uh, after that, bonus, uh, an acoustic live version of Baby I'm a Star, which I did in uh, an acoustic print set that I did a couple of years ago. I'm tacking that on to the end of this so you can hear it and or watch it. And if you are watching, how you like my outfit? I wanted to do Dickens meets Prince, so this like brown tweedy jacket with a purple shirt, and, you know, unbuttoned, so you can see, you know, my chest. Uh, does it work? I'd like to know that. And I'd like to know if you're fans of Dickens and or Prince, would you have thought to connect them in any way? I wouldn't have. If you read this book, how well do you feel Hornby did? I want to know about all of your opinions here, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for yet another mega episode, and I will talk to you next week.
draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 